Hi, and welcome to the Efficient Frontiers International Case Study Podcast. My name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined by my colleague, Matthew Pedley-Thompson from EFI Limited. Today's case study podcast is entitled, Sometimes Life is Not a Box of Chocolates. So the focus of our podcast today will be on a case involving blind spots in relation to customer due diligence. So as we've done in past case studies, we're going to set the scene. In 2019, a university academic who has his PhD in engineering, we'll call him the doctor for this case study, was sentenced to serve four years in prison after it was determined that he had dishonestly received project funding to the value of 2.8 million pounds derived from grant money from Innovate UK, the Department for Energy and Climate Change, and an EU equivalent research agency. The case itself was investigated by the National Crime Agency, and it's from their investigation we've derived a lot of facts in this case, as well as some of our own due diligence we've undertaken. On top of receiving a prison sentence, the doctor was also disqualified from acting as a director for at least seven years. So what do we know about the doctor? Well, we know first that the doctor was born and he lived for some time in Iran before he later moved to the UK, where he obtained British citizenship, and he completed his studies at one of the colleges at Cambridge University, where he also became a Bi Fellow. And he was known to travel to Iran in order to visit his family from time to time. So what else do we know about the doctor? Well, we know that he received a salary as a professor at Cambridge University. We also know that he was considered highly accomplished in the development of new technologies and was an expert in renewable energy technologies. And in fact, he had won quite legitimately international acclaim for working on wind turbine technology. Now, the doctor's research was primarily financed through grants. And how this process normally works is there an application is submitted. You, in general, have to explain to the government agency who you're applying to, what the funds will be used for, projected expenses that will be incurred by the project. And it makes it quite clear under the terms and conditions of most research grants that personal expenses are excluded. But they're very much dependent on the information that the applicant provides in order to correctly determine how big the grant is or how much money will be derived from the grant itself. They are awarded in various amounts, as we're going to see in a second. Grant recipients are expected to ensure that the funds are used for their intended purpose. So they have to explain the expenditures they actually incur on the projects and send that information to the granting agency. All of this will make sense in just a moment, but it is pretty relevant to this case. Here are some examples of grants which the doctor successfully applied for. You can see here that they range in amounts. They can go from 25,000 up to much larger amounts of almost 350,000 pounds, and therefore quite specific uh, research focus. Now, in order to receive the money from these grants, the doctor set up a number of companies and it would be the company who would receive the grant money. Now, we understand from the information available in the public domain that two of the companies formed by the doctor were Zagres Limited and Wind Technologies Limited. And it's also understood that the doctor held out that these two companies were spin-offs of companies or offshoots from the Cambridge University Engineering Department. Now, the government agencies we mentioned earlier who issue these grants make the information available on public websites. So you can see from the examples on this slide, you can quite readily search the name of the company, the date the grant was issued, and the amount that was awarded. 
So here's another example of that publicly available information in relation to grants awarded to the company I mentioned earlier, Zagriz Limited. Really, the fact that it's available online gives a lot more comfort because if, if it's online and it's from a reputable government source, you're not gonna have any reason to question. So how does this work in terms of supervising? Because if you do have a customer who is running a business that's largely funded by grants, you should have some idea how the spending of those monies is overseen. Government agencies do have a number of policies and procedures around this, and we've given an example of some of the guidance offered on one of the UK websites. And what they'll do is ask for a series of documentation, which is a little bit like our own AML KYC. So they'll ask for things like financial returns, such as statements of grant usage, and they should be linked to the release of future payments. So in other words, they want to see how you're using the money before they say give you the second or third installment of the grant money. They're supposed to do regular checkpoint meetings to discuss the progress against a prearranged schedule to make sure you're actually doing the research you said you would do. They also recommend doing monitoring visits. In other words, making sure the research lab exists. Peer reviews to make sure that what you're delivering is in fact fit for standard. Any other supporting documentation that will help them to understand how you're spending the grant monies and a requirement for a quarterly performance delivery report. Now, grants then can be quite intensive in terms of the reporting requirements, but again, these are all designed primarily to mitigate the risk of fraud or misuse of grant proceeds. So we've got checks that are done by the bank. We have checks that are done by the grant issuers it should have been fairly difficult for the doctor to engage in this scheme, but that wasn't quite the case. What the doctor managed to do was not only fool the regulators of the grants, but also the banks where he had accounts for these companies, and here's how he did it. So first he created invoices, which he was required to hand to the grant agencies. Some of them were completely fabricated or others were altered to inflate the amount of expenses that were actually incurred. When grants are issued, you're not allowed to profit from them. You have to give evidence that you have incurred expenses for which you require the grant. So it, normally there will be instances when someone has issued a grant where they don't use the full amount of the grant because they don't incur equivalent expenses. So what the doctor did in this case was by changing or creating invoices, or by inflating the amounts on existing ones, he maxed out the amount he could receive under the grant and essentially received more money than he would have actually been entitled to. But because he also understood, as I mentioned earlier, there would be checks and monitoring done by those grant agencies, he made sure those same forged invoices went to his accountants. So they ended up creating accounts and signing off on assurance reports that the grant agencies required that were in fact inaccurate, not due to any failure on the part of the accountants, but based on the falsified information that was given to them by the doctor. It turns out the doctor submitted to the accountants 80 false invoices that showed that machinery was being bought and almost 101 pages of forged bank statements that made it look like the invoices were actually paid. So while the projects themselves were legitimate, the doctor was inflating the amount of the expenses incurred and that neither the checkers of the grant agency nor his own accountants would be any of the wiser. So Matt, it would explain then why in some respects, neither the banks could possibly have known what was going on. It's pretty involved, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, I don't know when he had time to actually do research, to be honest. Because like he seems time job. It was exactly. It was a full-time job. So we have on the screen uh, a copy of the certificate of incorporation for one of the companies, Wind Technologies Limited. Now, for this particular entity, the doctor did work in conjunction with other academics who were also appointed as directors. Only he had control over the bank accounts in which the grant monies were placed. Now, a search of the company's house database disclosed that in all of the entities that he used, and there were four different companies, he always appears as either a shareholder and or a director. If they were all UK companies, that wouldn't necessarily be a red flag, would it? No, not at all. And you'd be able to see that one of this company here, uh, Wind Technologies Limited, was actually incorporated in 2006. So you'd believe that is quite a well-established company that has been involved in the field for quite a long time. They did file accounts. Really, how often, how often in due diligence are people for low-risk businesses or seemingly low-risk businesses checking the accounts? Well, it would never actually really come up if there weren't any red flags. Like the fact that they've provided the accounts would be sufficient. We know how the doctor has set up his scheme. So now he needs to actually access the money and enjoy it. The reason why we call this case study blind spots is because so far the story does sound pretty low risk. This bank didn't detect any problems at the first stages of the inflows for this case when these grants are coming in. So what do you think were some of the factors that would give the bank the impression this is low risk? Well, it's like what you said about the blind spots. The bank could think that the government has already performed their due diligence and actually go off the back of that and expect the customer to be low risk. And it's been around for a while, right? They'd receive other grants in the past. Yeah, so if it, uh, the customer had been with the bank since 2006, it would be unlikely that they would assume that around 2015 that the customer was going to start being involved in fraudulent activity. And as well, the fact that all that information was publicly available, there weren't really any negative stories about the doctor and any renewable technology. So it's not like anyone would have been alerted to anything questionable going on until 2019 when the case was released. Uh, it could go completely undetected during that duration. So we've talked about inflows. We know the money was paid by the government agencies to the bank account of Wind Technologies. How does the money move next? So Matt, what happens? So from looking at the image, it goes from the companies into one of the students' accounts. And then from there, it gets transferred from the students to the doctor. How is he characterizing these payments? So they were classed as studentship payments. So it looks like he's trying to make the payments appear more legitimate than they are. So they appear to be related to the PhD students' funds. So the fact that he's used students' accounts to actually pass the money from the company into the students' accounts than into his accounts, I find it kind of interesting because it's relatively common to see mule accounts, especially amongst younger people. So you see it quite often where it's a student has actually created an account and it's actually being operated by someone else. So they'll sell the account to someone else. A lot of the time, they don't actually know that it's going to be used for money laundering. You could use the grant money for expenses that might include hiring students to help with the research. It wouldn't look that unusual if you were paying students. Yeah, so if the banks actually came across this, I guess it could go undetected. From my experience working in transaction monitoring, if I ever come across a large sum of money passing through an account, I will usually do a quick Google search of someone to see whether they have any in their presence or not. And a lot of time, it usually does actually provide some very decent information that like you can usually find someone's LinkedIn. You could look at the LinkedIn and then you could maybe see that they're actually involved in renewable energy. 
So it's possible if that they are international students that when they're going back home, they might actually be giving access, uh, giving the doctor access to their accounts. And if in fact they were students who were helping him out with his research, it would have been perfectly normal for him to ask for their account details, right? Yeah, but it's at the point where the money gets transferred to him is where it starts to appear suspicious. So let's see what he does next then. He actually moves the money through these student bank accounts to himself. And we know that the doctor received about one million pounds in funds into that personal bank account. Yeah, so it's interesting. It is unlikely that he'd be able to provide information about why he's receiving large sums of money from external accounts with no reason behind it. I didn't think being a professor was all that profitable. Yes, because if he was to provide information regarding his salary, you would definitely question how a million pounds is passing through his account. And I also would be questioning, why is the flow going from the people I would expect to earn the least amount of money to the professor? In this situation as well, chances are the money is coming from the company and entering the student's account, but then rapidly being transferred to the doctor in this scenario. The doctor withdrew more than £820,000 from his personal account in just under four years. Well, Matt, what, what would that come to physically if you were just going to your local bank branch to withdraw this cash? Yeah, so we worked it out earlier that it would mean that he would be having to withdraw over £500 a day for four years. So some suspicious activity could be high volume of ATM withdrawals or withdrawals in high-risk jurisdictions. So if he was withdrawing that much money, they would definitely have flagged up. Well, it turns out the doctor used the money to fund a lavish lifestyle that was determined to exceed his legitimate income. And this including purchasing a property near Cambridge, and he even bought property in Iran as well as leased a Maserati sports car. And the NCA determined this because they discovered that he'd taken hundreds of thousands of pounds to Iran to the tune of 900,000 pounds. Excuse he gave was that because sanction screening is so strictly conducted by financial institutions, he wouldn't be, have been able to successfully transfer it to members of his family in Iran for use. And so he was left with no other option but to take it out in cash and bring it over. So how was the doctor eventually caught? Did someone file a suspicious activity report from the bank that he had his account with? Did the government agencies who provided him with the grants discover inconsistencies in the records he provided? Did his accountants perhaps spot some unusual information in the documentation that he'd forged and provided to them? No, actually, it was a money-sniffing dog at Heathrow Airport. It turns out that what the doctor was doing with all those withdrawals is he was bringing in bundles of cash, putting it in his hold-all luggage, and then he would get on a plane at Heathrow to go to Iran. On one occasion, the money-sniffing dog alerted its handler. They asked the doctor to open his luggage, and inside they found boxes of chocolates. They didn't contain chocolates. They actually contained up to 100,000 pounds in cash. But conveniently, the doctor had forged documents with him that supposedly justified why he had that money and how he had earned it. He was then stopped on a second trip trying to bring in large sums of cash. That time he tried to produce the same documents he showed the first time he was stopped to the customs officials. And unfortunately, he didn't realize that the customs officials picked up, this guy's showing us the same documentation for a different amount of money. And hence, an investigation was started by the NCA. And on a third occasion, when he tried to pass his way through Heathrow Airport, he was detained. And what followed was an 18-month investigation by the NCA, who managed to piece together exactly what it was that the doctor was up to. 
Investigating officer Ian Truby for the NCA said quite rightly, while the companies that the doctor was involved with were doing some legitimate work in the field of renewable energy, he used them as a cash cow. I really hope you've enjoyed our case study today. And if you think you might need any due diligence monitoring or investigation assistance at any point in time, and want to know how the team at EFI Limited could help out, feel free to reach out to our colleagues, Lizette Smith-Cullen and Russell Taylor, whose details are here on the slide. If you're listening to us today, feel free to reach out to EFI Limited on efilimited.com, or you can reach out to Lizette and Russell directly via LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.